0: Okay, we'll go ahead and get started. So, today we're going to talk about Charles Spurgeon. His uh, informal title is Prince of Preachers. And how many in the audience have heard of Charles Spurgeon? Uh, Yeah, most of you have. So Charles Spurgeon was born in 1834, died 1892. He was what was known as an English particular Baptist. Uh, He was a preacher. Now today, particular Baptists are known as Reformed Baptists. These are Baptists who embrace a Calvinist interpretation of Christian salvation. They're not Arminian in their approach to salvation. Particular Baptists arose in England in the 17th century and took their name from the doctrine of particular redemption. And this is the idea that the atonement of Christ's death would work itself out only in the elect, thereby leading them without fail to salvation. Born on June 19th, 1834, in Kelvedon, Essex, to John and Eliza Spurgeon, Charles was the firstborn of 17 children, of whom only eight survived adolescence. The family moved to Colchester when Charles was 10 months old. A boy who loved books, he quickly became fascinated with John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, the classic. He read and reread the book many times, reading it more than a hundred times in his lifetime. As a teenager, he came under a deep sense of conviction of his sinful state. In those days, uh, you know, when people would go to church and they would listen to a preacher preach, preachers didn't uh, try to get people saved in one meeting. You know, they would preach, and the whole idea was get convicted of your sins. Listen to what I'm telling you. Search your hearts. Examine yourselves. Uh, Where have you fallen short? In other words, meditate on your sins. And they they didn't go in for, you know, well, you can just come forward today and receive Christ. Instead, it was an emphasis on thinking about why you need a Savior, what, what sins have you committed? What is the state of your soul? Spurgeon's conversion from nominal congregationalism came on January 6th, 1850 at the age of 15. I think it's apropos that today there is a snowstorm outside, not a terrible snowstorm, but it was during a snowstorm when spurgeon was walking to an appointment that the weather got so bad he had to stop and he entered what was known as a primitive methodist chapel and this chapel was located on artillery street newtown in colchester a small english town it was here that he believed god opened his heart to the salvation message the text that moved him was isaiah 45 22. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. And this is a photograph of the little church building that he went into. Um, Of course, things change over time, and somebody apparently thought it was a good idea to plant trees directly in front of the building. I don't know why they did that. So today, this building, you know, it doesn't look the way it did in uh, Spurgeon's day. They also created a small parking lot. Um, The building at various times was not, it did not remain a church always, um, but today it's been restored and it's a church and you can go see it if you're ever in England. To quote Spurgeon, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. Years later, Spurgeon recalled the preacher's exact words. My dear friends, this is a simple text indeed. It says, look. Now lookin don't take a great deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger, it is just look. Well, a man needn't get to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand pounds a year to be able to look. Anyone can look, even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Many of ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. To continue on, some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of ye say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look unto Christ. The text says, look unto me. Spurgeon looked and he said that he could have almost looked his eyes away. He was converted that day at the little primitive Methodist chapel and his mother expressed dismay that he had become a Baptist uh, by saying, Charles, I have often prayed for your conversion, but not that you would become a Baptist. So although, (laughs) <laughs> he, although he was in a Methodist chapel, he later joined the Baptists, if that isn't totally clear. So he listened to the preaching of someone, apparently the person who was speaking in that Methodist to that Methodist group, and we've talked so much about the Methodists, um, lay people often ministered. The, the person he was listening to was no no educated uh clergyman, no um you know, no one special, not even an ordained Methodist uh pastor. He was just a Methodist lay preacher who was preaching the best he knew how from this text. But Charles Spurgeon later joined the particular Baptists. And um <laughs> That did cause a lot of problems in his family. He came from a family of preachers. His father was a preacher. His grandfather was a preacher, but they were not Baptist. And to his mother, Spurgeon replied, that shows, dear mother, that God has done exceeding abundantly above all you asked or thought. (laughs) On April 4th, 1850, he was admitted to the Baptist church at Newmarket, and was baptized on May 3rd at Isleham. He moved to Cambridge, where he became a Sunday school teacher. Spurgeon preached his first sermon in the winter of 1850, 1851, in a cottage in Teversham while filling in for a friend while he was still only 15 years old. His speaking style was considered above average. He was just a teenager. Later, he was installed as pastor of a small Baptist church, at Water Beach, Cambridgeshire. In April 1854, after preaching three months on probation and just four years after his conversion, Spurgeon, then only 19 years old, was called to the pastorate of London's famed New Park Street Chapel in Southwark, which was a, a, sec, a particular section of London. You know, we talk about East Dayton in different neighborhoods in the Dayton area. That's how they spoke of this part of London. It was Southwark. This church had been formerly pastored by the particular or Reformed Baptist Benjamin Keech and theologian John Gill. John Gill's very famous. You may have heard of him. This was the largest Baptist congregation in London at the time, although it had dwindled in numbers for several years. It had a couple hundred people at that point. And this is a a woodcutter engraving of Spurgeon at the age of 23. Charles lived during the Victorian age where progress was the prized virtue of the day. Born in the country, when the 19-year-old moved to London in 1854, he was entering the largest and most powerful city in the world at that time. Remember, at this period in history, England, part of the United Kingdom and Great Britain is, has an empire. And its empire stretches across the globe. Uh, it has Australia, New Zealand, India, um, certain parts of the Middle East and Africa. Um, and although it had lost colonies in the New World in the 18th century... The British Empire was, you know, a very powerful, biggest empire of its day. But the Southwark borough where uh, Spurgeon was ministering was a section of London with a preeminently evil reputation and a meanness which proceeds from extreme poverty and decay. And much like today, I'm sure the people in this part of London suffered from all kinds of Difficulties, diseases, addictions, all of the things that go along with poverty. To complicate matters, when Charles arrived at New Park Street Chapel, the dwindling congregation could not pay him a regular salary. He was paid by the fluctuating and meager seat rent. In other words, people had seats in the church, and sometimes, you know, they paid for those seats, but sometimes they paid and sometimes they didn't. When the congregation and the giving revived after three months of his ministry, he declared, I will pay for the cleaning and lighting myself. So from his meager salary, he covered church expenses. And from that day, he personally covered all the incidental expenses of New Park Street Chapel And the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which is the church that he later pastored, it was the successor to the New Park Street Chapel. And he did that up until his death. Within a few months of Spurgeon's arrival at Park Street, his ability as a preacher made him famous. The following year, the first of his sermons in the New Park Street Pulpit Uh, It was a a publication, like a magazine or a newspaper, was published. Spurgeon's sermons were published in printed form every week and had a high circulation. And as time went on, these sermons were available worldwide. By the time of his death in 1892, he had preached nearly 3,600 sermons and published 49 volumes of commentaries, sayings, anecdotes, illustrations, and devotions. But with fame came criticism. Now remember, he's just barely 20 years old when he's starting out at New Park Street Chapel. The first attack in the press appeared in the Earthen Vessel, a Baptist publication, in January of 1855. His preaching, although not revolutionary in substance, was a plain spoken and direct appeal to the people, using the Bible to provoke them to consider the teachings of Jesus Christ. But critical attacks from the media persisted throughout his life. But Spurgeon's congregation quickly outgrew their building and moved to Exeter Hall, then to Surrey Music Hall. At 22, Spurgeon was the most popular preacher of the day in England. And his fame was spreading throughout the world. Many Americans read his sermons. You know, uh, uh, he you know, primarily is a British preacher, but he had a powerful impact on evangelicalism worldwide and America. And that's why we have to include him as we look at the different factors that influence American Christianity. On, on uh, January 8th, 1856, Charles married Susanna Thompson. And Susanna, or Susie as she was known, gave birth to twin sons, Charles and Thomas, born September 20th, 1856. So (laughs) Spurgeon's wasting no time. (laughs) He's coming into his vocation, he's getting married and starting his family. Despite having poor health, Susie was a great support to Charles and developed a ministry of her own called the Book Fund. In 1875, Charles handed Susie a draft of his new book, Lectures to My Students. Susie excitedly declared that she wished every pastor in England could have a copy. And this is uh, an engraving of Susie uh, Spurgeon. Charles quipped, then why not do so? How much will you give? So he challenged her. Susie found her savings enabled her to provide 100 copies of lectures to my students. Charles announced in his magazine that 100 copies of the book would be mailed to poor pastors at no charge. Orders flooded in for the books from English ministers, many of whom were so strapped for money that they hadn't bought a new book in years. Most clergy, clergymen in England were poor, they were just poor. Spurgeon announced the results in the next issue of his magazine and asked his readers to help continue the work. Donations poured in. Though the Spurgeons never again asked for funds, enough money continued to trickle in over the years to distribute hundreds of thousands of theological books. Susie often worked from her sickbed, keeping track of the finances and corresponding with pastors. A room in the Spurgeon home was dedicated to storing and shipping books. As long as Susie was well enough, volunteers would come in once every two weeks to help pack books for shipping. But this was not a ministry supported by the church. The Spurgeon family, with the help of friends, did this pretty much on their own. One event that marred the early years of Spurgeon's ministry was the tragedy of October 19th, 1856, shortly after his marriage to Susie and the birth of his twin sons. Now remember, he's only in his 20s pastoring a vast, at this point, it's a growing vast congregation. The evening of that day, October 19th, 1856, 12,000 people uh, entered the Surrey Music Hall where Spurgeon was ministering. 10,000 eager listeners couldn't even get in the building. They were standing outside, but yet they were trying to get in and they wanted to hear Spurgeon preach. A few minutes after six o'clock, someone in the audience shouted Fire! The galleries are giving way. The place is falling. Okay, what happens when you shout fire in a crowded theater? Pandemonium ensued as a balcony collapsed. Those trying to get into the building blocked the exit of those fighting to escape. It was horrendous. Spurgeon attempted to quell the commotion, but to no avail. His text for the day was Proverbs 333. The curse of the Lord is in the house of the wicked, a verse he would never preach again. An eyewitness recorded the cries and shrieks at this period were truly terrific. They pressed on, treading furiously over the dead and dying, tearing frantically at each other. You've probably heard of events in in, uh, recent times of uh, things happening at concerts. Um, and there was not long ago, I think a tornado went through Indiana, uh, and, and there was a concert taking place at the fairgrounds of a city in Indiana, and the whole thing collapsed. And, you know, it, it, these things happen in these large venues, especially when, you know, the building wasn't built to sustain that volume of people. Spurgeon nearly lost consciousness. He was rushed from the platform and taken home more dead than alive. After the crowds dispersed, seven corpses were lying in the grass. 28 people were seriously injured. The depression that resulted from this disaster left Spurgeon prostrate for days. He is reported to have said, even the sight of the Bible brought from me a flood of tears and utter distraction of mind. The newspapers added to his emotional deterioration. Mr. Spurgeon is a preacher who hurls damnation at the heads of his sinful hearers, a ranting charlatan. By all accounts, it looked as if his ministry was over. It might well seem that the ministry which promised to be so largely influential was silenced forever. But it wasn't. When Spurgeon ascended the pulpit on November 2nd, two weeks later, he opened with a prayer. We are assembled here, O Lord, this day with mingled feelings of joy and sorrow. Thy servant feared that he should never be able to meet this congregation again. But this incident had a lasting impact on Spurgeon. He later said, I have gone to the very bottoms of the mountains, as some of you know, in a night that never can be erased from my memory. But as far as my witness goes, I can say that the Lord is able to save unto the uttermost and in the last extremity, and he has been a good God to me. On October 7th, 1857, Spurgeon preached to the largest crowd ever, 23,654 people at the Crystal Palace in London. And hopefully you can uh, get a sense from this uh, early photograph of just how large the Crystal Palace was. Um, the Crystal Palace was originally built for an exhibition that was put on by Great Britain. Um, it was the brainchild of Prince Albert, husband of Queen Victoria. And Now again, remember Britain is at the height of its power, the height of its empire. And so in 1851, Prince Albert had decided We should show to the whole world how great we are and all the wonderful marvels of the inventions and innovations and the technology of the Industrial Revolution and all of what Britain has accomplished. And so they did this big exhibition and they built this crystal palace to be a part of that. Now later, the crystal palace was completely dismantled, moved, and rebuilt. And when Spurgeon preached in it, he was uh, preaching in the new location. But this was a huge building. This, you know, this crowd was enormous. However, this building was much better suited to a large crowd because it had been built for that purpose. Spurgeon noted, in 1857, a day or two before preaching at the Crystal Palace, I went to decide where the platform should be fixed and in order to test the acoustic properties of the building, cried in a loud voice, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. In one of the galleries, a workman, who knew nothing of what was being done, heard the words, and they came like a message from heaven to his soul. He was smitten with conviction on account of sin, put down his tools, went home, and there, after a season of spiritual struggling, found peace and life by beholding the Lamb of God. Years after, he told this story to one who visited him on his deathbed. The autumn of 1857 brought news of the Indian mutiny uh, when native Indian soldiers, known as sepoys, Rebelled against British officers, so just as the Roman Empire had s- subjected many nations to their rule, so Britain had basically taken over India, and was running it. And um, Indians were part of the the army that the British, um, you know, organized and maintained. Um, but the Indians of you know just just like. Any subject people uh, being ruled by another, uh, you know, nation uh, as part of an empire uh, rose up and rebelled. And um, for years, of course, it took a long time for India to gain its independence, almost 100 years after this event, or really more than 100 years after this event, But at that time, uh, this rebellion broke out. Um, It swept like wildfire across northern India, engulfing Delhi, Lucknow, and Kanpur. Uh, So the British people felt very keenly about this uprising. And the bloodshed that followed was felt by Britain to be a great humiliation. In other words, what have we done wrong? Well, certainly there was a lot that was wrong, but you know, they they didn't see it as we see it today. They saw it rather differently, um, and we have to keep that in mind. But for the British, it was almost like nine eleven was for Americans. Um, you know, it, it's 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 a national catastrophe. Even though for people in Britain, this had happened thousands of miles away in India. Uh, and. Queen Victoria called for a day of national humiliation, fasting, and prayer before Almighty God. Now, again, remember, it's that old idea of Christendom. The nation, the whole nation is a Christian nation. And the way it was viewed at that time was our empire is supposed to be bringing Christianity throughout the world. And they viewed it as we haven't done enough to bring Christianity to India. That's what they thought the problem was, and in a sense, they were right. Not how they viewed it, but you know how they how they uh, looked at India, how they looked at the Indian people, and how Christianity was spread through India. Um, you know, it was very much the white man's religion imposed on a different people. That's you know the Indians looked at it that way. Uh, So in one sense, you could say, yes, that's true. The British had failed in their attempt to bring Christianity to India, but that really wasn't why the Indians mutinied. Um, But it would take them a long time to figure all of that out. So the call to Britain was to seek God for pardon for sins, to implore his blessing, and crave his help in restoring peace to India. Wednesday, October 7th, 1857, was the appointed day. On the day of humiliation, the Crystal Palace, formerly part of the great exhibition of 1851, the showcase to the world of Britain's power, might, and and innovation, technology, and superiority, uh, was once again, again filled with people, but this time for a very different purpose. Now it was to hear... Uh, a message from a preacher uh, who would be speaking to them about the Lord and his purposes. His message would be heard not just by the people who gathered at the Crystal Palace, but all of Britain, its empire, and indeed the whole world. Spurgeon was in a quandary. The day had been set apart for the nation to unite in a solemn fast and seek the face of Almighty God in order to obtain pardon of our sins the idea was that we have sinned and so this disaster occurred it's specific sins that caused the tragedy and yes sin was involved but perhaps not in the way they thought but most of the clergy believe the mutiny to be divine judgment for not spreading british culture and the christian religion vigorously enough in the empire But Spurgeon could not be so dogmatic. Better by far, he felt to follow the principle set out by the Lord himself when he told his hearers that the victims of the Tower of Siloam disaster were no more wicked than anyone else. Uh, If you look at Luke 13, verses 4 and 5, Jesus refers to this tower that fell upon some people. And why did that happen? He went on to explain that this does not mean there is never a divine visitation for a particular offense in this life. Nor can it be said, Spurgeon continued, that there is no such thing as national judgments for national sins. He said that the great authorities of England, and who am I that I should dispute such a high authority as that, implying Queen Victoria, had blamed the sin of the people of England That being the case, it fell to him to point out the nation's sins. Spurgeon eloquently detailed the grievous sins of the rich, the clergy, the prevalence of prostitution in Britain, the lack of faith of the poor. He reminded his hearers that though they might pray and fast today, would they continue to do so when victory came? He asked them, how many of you have been awakened convinced of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. How many times have you vowed you would repent, and yet you have been liars to the Almighty. You have defrauded the Most High, and whilst the bill is due, it still stands dishonored. Tremble, God may smite you yet. He called on them to repent. He spoke of the Savior, nailed to a cross, that we might not die and to the free path to paradise that is open to every penitent. Spurgeon had delivered his soul and done so without fear of man, and he must have been spiritually and emotionally drained. In his biography, he relates how he went to bed on that Wednesday night and only woke up the following Friday morning. Thursday went missing. He slept more than 24 hours. He wrote, my dear wife came at intervals to look at me, and every time she found me sleeping peacefully, so she just let me slumber on. Of the day itself, Spurgeon said, eternity alone will reveal the full results. By March 1861, Spurgeon's congregation moved from Surrey Music Hall to the newly constructed purpose-built Metropolitan Tabernacle in Southwark seating 5,000 people with standing room for another 1,000. The Metropolitan Tabernacle was the largest church building or edifice of its day. And Spurgeon continued to preach there several times per week until his death 31 years later. He never gave altar calls at the conclusion of his sermons, but he always extended the invitation that if anyone was moved to seek an interest in Christ by his preaching on a Sunday, they could meet with him at his vestry on Monday morning. Without fail, there was always someone at Spurgeon's door the next day. He wrote his sermons out fully before he preached, but what he carried up to the pulpit was a note card with an outline sketch. Stenographers would take down the sermon As it was delivered and Spurgeon would then have opportunity to revise the transcripts the following day for immediate publication. His weekly sermons, which sold for a penny each, were widely circulated and remain one of the all-time best-selling series of writings published in history. Besides sermons, Spurgeon also wrote several hymns and published a new collection of worship songs in 1866 called our own hymn book singing in the congregation was exclusively acapella under his pastorate of course with that many people did you really even need instruments thousands heard the preaching and were led in the singing without any type of amplification of sound that exists today But the Metropolitan Tabernacle and Spurgeon's ministry extended far beyond the usual church activities. By 1876, there were 22 other ministries supported by the church. The New Park Street Chapel site, uh, where he had first really started in on his ministry, was sold to allow the tabernacle to build an almshouse and school. And an almshouse was basically like a giant dormitory for poor people who were homeless. The Stockwell Orphanage was one of these ministries. This opened in 1867 and originally started with 240 boys and later expanded uh, and added girls in 1879. These orphanages continued in London until they were bombed in World War II. And yet even after the war, they were rebuilt They still exist today. The Coal Portage Association. Coal porters were employed to take Bibles, good books, and periodicals for sale from house to house. They also were involved in visiting the sick and holding meetings. Very much like the Methodist lay ministers who uh, oversaw house meetings and uh, ministered to people, These coal porters are essentially doing the same thing. They are lay ministers. Spurgeon also raised money for hospitals seeking to make health care available to the poor. For all the successes, it should be noted that both Spurgeon and his wife had difficulties and struggles. Spurgeon was often in poor physical health, as was Susie. The incident of the panic in 1856 at the Surrey Music Hall had a profound impact on him the rest of his life. He later said, I have gone to the very bottoms of the mountains, as some of you know, in a night that never can be erased from my memory. But as far as my witness goes, I can say that the Lord is able to save unto the uttermost and in the last extremity, and he has been a good God to me. It is recognized now that Spurgeon struggled with depression. Spurgeon knew by most painful experience what deep depression of spirit means, being visited therewith at seasons by no means few or far between. He warned his students, fits of depression come over the most of us. Usually cheerful as we may be, we must at intervals be cast down. The strong are not always vigorous, the wise not always ready, the brave not always courageous and the joyous not always happy. He detailed his struggles in his book, Lectures to My Students. Spurgeon wrote, any simpleton can follow the narrow path in the light. Faith's rare wisdom enables us to march on in the dark with infallible accuracy since she places her hand in that of her great guide. Spurgeon acknowledged that depression may come to some believers for no discernible reason. He did not consider it an illness or a sin or a surprising condition, but an inevitable season in the life of a Christian and an opportunity to demonstrate trust in the God who will one day wipe away every tear. Also, Spurgeon suffered from attacks in the press and from other segments of society. Spurgeon was strongly opposed to the owning of slaves. He lost support from American Southern Baptists as sales of his sermons dropped in the US and he received scores of threatening and insulting letters as a result. American Baptists in the the US, in the South, burned his sermons. Spurgeon became involved in the downgrade controversy, a conflict among Baptists that flared up in 1887. The downgrade controversy centered around basic Christian doctrine and what Spurgeon viewed as a downgrade of the Bible and the principle of sola scriptura among Baptists. Remember, he's a Calvinist. Um, you know, he believes in the five solas. Spurgeon framed the controversy in this way. Believers in Christ's atonement are now in declared union with those who make light of it. Believers in holy scripture are in confederacy with those who deny plenary inspiration. Those who hold evangelical doctrine are in open alliance with those who call the fall a fable, who deny the personality of the Holy Ghost, who called justification by faith immoral and hold that there is another probation after death. It is our solemn conviction that there should be no pretense of fellowship. Fellowship with known and vital error is participation in sin. What was beginning to happen is that Baptists of his day were beginning to buy into Darwinian evolutionary theories, higher criticism that said, parts of the bible are just fables or myths the creation account is a fable man was not created by god he just ascended from lower life forms like apes things of that nature biblical higher criticism the darwinian evolutionary theory of the existence of life on earth and the ascent of man, quote unquote, universalism, the idea that there is no hell, nobody's going to hell, everybody's going to heaven, and not everybody will be saved, and modern thinking in general had infected Christianity and Baptists in Britain. Spurgeon and the Metropolitan Tabernacle had been affiliated with the Baptist Union, an association of both general, or Arminian, and particular, or Reformed, or Calvinist Baptists. And so I should say also, at this point, Spurgeon, uh, being Calvinistic in his view of salvation, scripture, and so forth, um, being a particular Baptist, or, or, you know, believing in Reformed theology, still maintained fellowship with Arminian Baptists, have very different views on salvation how one is saved all of that but as long as they adhered to the infallibility of the bible and some basic doctrines the deity of christ was beginning to be attacked you know he could stay in in fellowship with these other baptists uh but only up to a certain point you know he could not deny the most basic fundamentals of the christian faith So if you frame it using the language of the modernist fundamentalist controversy, which I've used that phrase before, Spurgeon was a thoroughgoing fundamentalist. Spurgeon believed that the Baptist Union was beginning to embrace modernism, but he remained fundamentalist in his beliefs on the infallibility of scripture, the necessity of the substitutionary nature of Christ's atonement, the existence of hell, and the personality of the Holy Spirit. Once you start attacking the deity of Christ, once you begin to question who is the Holy Spirit, you are, in effect, beginning to tamper with the Trinity. You are getting at the very heart of you know, proper Christian theology. And he felt that this is the direction many Baptists were going in. So Spurgeon and the Metropolitan Tabernacle left the Baptist Union in the autumn of 1887, becoming the world's largest self-standing church. Uh, He did not join any other affiliation. The last five years of Spurgeon's life were marked by increasing ill health, although he continued working. When he died in January of 1892, his body was viewed by more than 100,000 people. It was, you know, it was like the death of a, of a sovereign or, you know, a state, you know. Um, he lay in state for several days to allow the crowds to, to go past his body. The funeral procession was more than two miles long. And Spurgeon's legacy includes thousands of sermons, a 5,103-volume library collection, hymns and all of the charitable works he and the church started and sustained along with his wife's book fund for pastors so he had a magnificent ministry a magnificent legacy he stands as one of the giants certainly uh, for protestant christians english-speaking christians not just in britain but throughout the world and especially in america and his influence continues Um, and if you want to ever read anything by Spurgeon, uh, if you never have, I encourage you to do so. There's tons of it for free on the internet, um, and I don't. You probably can't see <laughs> uh, lots of websites. Um, uh, some of the best are PrinceofPreachers.org, uh, <clears throat> CredoMag.com has. <laughs> Has tons of good stuff, not just about Spurgeon, but lots of good stuff. Um, so, princeofpreachers.org and spurgeon.org, um, and uh, their Midwest Bible uh, uh, Midwest Bible Theological Seminary, and I forget where it's located, it might be in Kansas. Um, they have, you know, they bought most of Spurgeon's works. They have a vast library. And again, much of what he wrote has been put online. And much of it is free downloads, just loads of it. So, um, you know, he truly, in a a sense, he truly burned himself out for Christ. Um, As he got older, his church wanted, made him take vacations. They made him. uh, But even on vacation, he couldn't stop. On one vacation, he wrote a commentary on the book of Matthew. (laughs) <laughs> you know <laughs> he you know he was he was consumed by uh his passion for Christ and for you know relaying uh the knowledge of the gospel throughout the entire world. Well, this summarizes what I have to share about Charles Spurgeon. I hope this has been helpful for you. Um, we do have time if there's a few questions or comments.